Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 756th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is working to remove fossil fuels from the food system. We're talking with Richard Heinberg about power, energy, and climate change. Richard is a senior fellow of the Post Carbon Institute. He's an author, educator, and lecturer, and has spoken widely on energy and climate issues to audiences across the globe. He's the author of 14 books, including the most recent Power, Limits and Prospects for Human Survival, along with his podcast of the same name. He is widely published in Nature, The Wall Street Journal, and Literary Review, and has delivered hundreds of lectures on energy and climate issues to audiences on six continents, addressing policymakers at many levels. Welcome to the show today, Richard. Are you ready to rock? Hey, let's do it. Awesome. So I (laughs) shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? I I grew up, went to school high school and college back in the late 60s and early 70s. And that was a time of uh, ferment and realizations of all kinds. I was reading books like Limits to Growth and Small is Beautiful. And I I realized that a modern industrial society was on a, a fundamentally unsustainable path. But I couldn't really figure out why that was. And I spent years looking into economic history and even world mythology to try to understand why the modern world seemed so intent on self-destruction. And in I know exactly what year it was, 1998, I read a few key articles and finally realized it all came down to energy. And and specifically fossil fuels. Fossil fuels were giving us so much cheap energy that we were able to extract raw materials in greater amounts and manufacture goods and transport them and increase our population and our per capita consumption to levels that were completely unprecedented in all of human history. And we look at these things that we've accomplished in the last 100 years, and we tend to think, well, it's human ingenuity, it's technology. But without the cheap energy, none of that would have happened. And I didn't get that till 1998. But once I did, it changed everything. And it set me on the path I've been on ever since. That makes a lot of sense. And we're talking about our food system and fossil fuels. So how much does our food system depend on fossil fuels? We depend on fossil fuels for growing food in terms of fuel for tractors and other farm machinery. We make fertilizers out of fossil fuels, pesticides and herbicides we make out of fossil fuels. That's all just growing the food. Then there's transporting the food. All, almost all of that is diesel fuel. Then there's processing the food. And actually, if you look at a chart of where the energy gets expended in our food system, processing is, is the biggest one. Really? Enormous amount of energy in food processing. Then packaging. Most of the packaging we use is plastic. And where does that come from? It's fossil fuels. And then there's preparation of food, cooking. And Where do we get that energy? It's mostly from natural gas. So, you know, food is energy. 
we where do we get our metabolic energy to sustain life from eating food? But it takes so much energy to grow food that it's a it's like a one to ten ratio. We expend ten calories of fossil fuel energy to produce each calorie of food. How is that even possible, you think? In any previous period of human history, we had to run an energy surplus with food production in order to sustain life, in order to sustain human societies and our basic metabolic existence. But now we run an energy deficit in our food system, a 10 to 1 energy deficit. Never happened before, and it's probably likely never going to happen again in our human future. Yeah. And I've studied this for 40 years. And so I know what you're talking about. And I'm going to ask the next question. That's an obvious question for you and I, but may not be for our listeners. Why is this a problem? It's a problem because all of that fossil fuel energy is a one-time gift of nature. <laughs> if we that's want to good, put it in, in nice terms. It. Yeah. yeah. Fossil fuels are inherently finite in terms of quantity. They were produced over tens of millions of years by geological processes that basically aren't working anymore. We, fossil fuels may be being produced right now. You'd have to be around 50 million years from now to benefit from them. Basically, they're non-renewable resources that we're extracting using the low-hanging fruit principle. So we get the cheapest, easiest, best, least polluting fossil fuels first. And then as time goes on, the whole process of extracting gets more difficult, more expensive, more energy intensive, and so on. So that's one problem with fossil fuels. The other is they're extremely polluting. The process of producing fossil fuels is polluting, burning fossil fuels releases, pollution into the air, water, so on. But then also there's greenhouse gas emissions, principally carbon dioxide, but also methane, go up into the atmosphere, change the chemistry of the Earth's atmosphere and the Earth's oceans. And we've figured out over the last couple of decades that this is absolutely unsustainable. It's a threat to future generations, not only of humans, but also the rest of the biosphere. So we know we've got to get off of fossil fuels. This is, in one way, you could say fossil fuels have been the greatest benefit in all of human history because they've enabled us to do so much so fast and increase our population and so on. But it's a bargain with the devil. Unless we figure out how to get off of fossil fuels really fast, it's going to undo all of those benefits and more. It's what could happen is you know really terrible. And speaking from the perspective of carrying capacity, an ecosystem can't indefinitely exceed the carrying capacity of it. And that's what we're doing here on the planet. Yeah, it's not just climate change. We're also destroying topsoil. We're over-harvesting freshwater from aquifers. We're mm -hmm. depleting stocks of fish in the ocean and, and forests. In a way, the best description of what we're doing is a concept from population ecology, and it's a concept called overshoot. Mm -hmm. It's where a, an organism has a sudden surplus of food. And let's say 
I'll use an example from my own experience. My wife and I were going camping a, a couple of decades ago, and we were going out into Point Reyes, California, beautiful place. And we started noticing all these field mice around. You could hardly take a step without almost stepping on a, a vole, which is a field mouse. What's going on here? So we talked to the ranger afterward and said, what's with the voles? And he said, we had a lot of rain the last couple of years. A lot of small green plants grew up and those are perfect food for the voles. So the population of voles exploded. Now what's happening is we're getting an explosion in the population of foxes mm -hmm. and hawks that are eating the voles. Also what's happening is the voles are eating all of that surplus of food and the carrying capacity of the environment for voles is declining. So this happens in nature all the time, right? but we're seeing it happen in humanity, in human systems over a historically short period of time and at a scale we've never seen before. Fossil fuels have artificially increased the carrying capacity of planet Earth for human beings. They've made it easier to grow food in larger quantities to transport the food from where it's abundant to where it's scarce so we can support more people in places where otherwise we wouldn't be able to support very many people. And as a result, we've grown our population from 1 billion to 8 billion in just two centuries. We're adding right. a billion people every 12 years wouldn't be possible without fossil fuels. So we've artificially expanded the carrying capacity, but at the same time, we're eroding that carrying capacity by destroying topsoil with modern agricultural practices, with climate change. We could go on and on. It's a classic situation of overshoot. Right. And that's the real dilemma for Homo sapiens in the 21st century. Climate change is part of that overshoot dilemma, but it's not the whole thing. And do you think that solar and wind alternative energies might have an impact on this? Yeah, we definitely need alternative energy sources. I've studied this for years. I spent a year working with the smartest energy guy I know, David Fridley of the energy analysis team at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. We did a project together. It's a book and you can buy the book or you can just go to the website. The book title of the book is Our Renewable Future. And just go to the website, ourrenewablefuture.org and you can find the whole text of the book free online. Okay. So it's not hard to get. What we did is we spent a year looking at the prospects for renewable energy, specifically solar and wind, to replace, totally replace fossil fuels. And what we found was that at the laboratory scale, it can all be done. There's theoretically, there's ways of keeping airliners flying, of running our food system, of making consumer electronics and everything else that, that we're doing. But the biggest problem we identified was scale. Some yeah. of those things that you can do them at laboratory scale, but you try to scale it up. Aviation, for example, commercial aviation. You can make synthetic jet fuel out of hydrogen that you make use renewable electricity and electrolyzed water, produce hydrogen, combine the hydrogen with carbon dioxide you take out of the atmosphere, make a synthetic fuel like, say, methanol, for example, and run airliners transitioning our current aviation fleets to do that 
over the course of the next 15, 20 years, which is what we need to do in order to avert catastrophic climate change. It's just not going to happen. There's too much inertia in the system. It would cost too much to build all this new infrastructure. We're talking about infrastructure to produce these synthetic fuels, infrastructure on a scale comparable to our current global oil industry. Are we going to rebuild that in 15 years? No, it's just not going to happen. Yes, we do need alternative energy sources, but we have to get used to the fact that they're not going to replace fossil fuels on a one-to-one basis to enable us to continue doing all of the things that we're currently doing. We're going to have to scale back a lot of things and transform a lot of our systems, like our food system, so that they work differently, so that they use less energy, and so that they're, in many cases, more localized and more human scale. Yeah. And this brings me to my next question in a kind of a roundabout way. In talking about overshoot, when the mice eat all of the food and they run out of food, what happens? The mice start dying. Yes. And and that impacts everybody up the chain. What do we need to do to make sure that doesn't happen to our food system? We need to transform our food system and we need to do it deliberately. And there are lots of things that need to be done in order for that to happen. Earlier, I went through the ways in which our food system currently depends on fossil fuels. Growing food, transporting food, processing food, packaging, preparation. All of those areas need to be transformed, each and every one of them, from how we grow food. We need to grow food on a more local scale so that we don't have to do so much transporting of food. We need to grow it with fewer pesticides and herbicides and less fertilizer. We need to do less processing. We need to eat food that isn't processed as much, that's more directly from the farm. That's really food. Yeah, that's really food. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and just localizing our food systems is going to be a big part of that. And that means more people growing food on a smaller scale, closer to where it's going to be consumed. In their front and backyards. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And growing more food in urban areas and suburban areas, as well as out in the country. I have said for years that the, with a capital T, solution to our global food problem is growing it where we're living. Growing it in our cities, growing it in our front and backyards. And that's, I think, where we can make the biggest impact. That's absolutely right. And in order to do that, we need way more farmers. (laughs) Amen to that. (laughs) One one of the things that happened with the fossil fuel revolution was we went from 90% of people working at agriculture in roughly the year 1800 to today, where we have maybe one or 2% of the population are full-time farmers. So that's freed up most of the population to move to cities. Urbanization has been the big demographic trend of the past few decades. Move Mm -hmm. to cities and get jobs in thousands of different occupations and industries and so on. Great. That's good for the economy, for the GDP and so on. But it gives us a very brittle food system where people have no idea where their food came from. They have Mm -hmm. no connection with how it was grown. And so they just become alienated from the very thing that's keeping them alive. Yeah. Wow. And so really what this boils down to, hear your solution as is in my solution is that 
localizing our food system is really what needs to happen. So what are the benefits of that? We've touched on some of them, but... Yeah, the benefits are community and health. Those are two big areas. I could, I, there are more things you can talk about. If you're growing your own food, you care more about how it's being produced you're less likely to put poison on your own mm-hmm. land. If it's not just a dollar and cents kind of situation, but you're going to be eating that food, you want it to be as high quality as possible. So there are health benefits. And if we have more farmers growing food locally, that means that there can be more direct connection between producers and consumers. And in many cases, these will be the same people. So that means there's more of a direct connection between the consumer and the person who's growing their food. And that means your whole community is more closely knit. You have more of a sense of responsibility and trust. And those are two things that are draining away from our communities. Currently, we have so much polarization and distrust all around. How do you rebuild that trust? It can start with the food system. Food. With food, when people have a party, where do people gather? (laughs) That's right. They gather in the kitchen. Yeah, exactly. Around the food table. And so in this relocalizing our food systems, what do you see some of the challenges being? We've built our current food system so much around this model that I've been talking about of industrialized fossil fueled food that it's we've optimized it. We've made it so efficient that we've gotten the cheapest food in all of human history. I know this can be difficult to hear for some people who are poor and don't have access mm-hmm. to nourishing food, but the economic reality is we have very, very cheap food in our yeah. current industrial system. If somebody wants to grow without pesticides and herbicides, that we have a name for that, organic. There's a premium for that. Organic food costs a little bit more and so on. And having buying at a farmer's market, that's a great way to localize your food system. But people aren't used to doing that. They're used to going down to the supermarket and buying food in plastic wrap and mm-hmm. taking it home. So we have to change our habits and our expectations. And sometimes we have to be willing to pay a little more. Yeah. Excellent. And how do you suppose we go about doing this? This has to be a national priority. And of course, there are people who are going to fight against it. And you look at the big food conglomerates, and I don't have to name them. Everybody knows who they are. They're going to fight this because they want the system to, they want to maintain their power, their economic power within the overall economy and the food system. But this is bigger than vested interests. This is about our survival as a country, as a species. So this needs to be a national priority, a wartime level kind of priority. During World War I, World War II, we had the Victory Gardens. And this was a program that was promoted by the U.S. Department of Agriculture with advertising that Everybody saw on billboards and magazines, everywhere you looked, grow your own victory garden. And the government made it easy for people to do that and offered support for people to do that. That was a wartime situation. Our survival seemed to depend on it. Well, today our survival depends on it. And even though it's not a war in the same sense as World War II, 
the stakes are the same or even higher. I think they're higher. Absolutely. Yeah. I have this theory that I developed maybe 15 years ago. I call it my 99-1 theory. 99% of the time people change because they get hit by a Mack truck. <laughs> yeah. And 1% of the time they change because they choose to change. So how do we create systems and how do we create a process by which we can get people to choose to change around this? And we don't have to have a, a COVID incident happen where all of our grocery store shelves are empty. What are steps do we need to take in order to move forward? There are a lot of them. I was just talking about the role that government might take, but education too. How many people right now go to college to get a degree in horticulture or agriculture or permaculture or something like that? Very few because young people see there's not much money in it. If you actually talk to young people, and I do talk to young people about this, a lot of them view growing food <clears throat> as a very honorable way of spending your life. Yeah. And if they could make a living doing it, they'd be happy to, but the obstacles are just too great. And one of the biggest obstacles, and we need more young farmers because you know, the, the average age of farmers in the U.S. is 55 and up. So <clears throat> we need these young farmers. How do we encourage them? Through education and by making land available, available. to them. Yeah. Because th th when I talk to young farmers, this is the one thing they say, land is just so expensive. I want to do this, but I can't afford it. So mm -hmm. who owns all that land? guess what? Old people, <laughs> baby right. boomers, yeah. people my age. And this is a campaign I've been on for some time. People my age who own land need to find ways of making it available to idealistic young farmers who want to do the right thing, but can't afford to. Yeah. I have to tell you, I was doing some volunteer work for a local fruit tree program here in Asheville. And we were tagging trees and doing all kinds of stuff like that. And I met a young lady named Scout. And I'm guessing she's in her late 20s. And she and her partner have recently purchased 80 acres in the Asheville area. And they're planting orchards and farming it. And I looked at her and I said, you know what? You and your group of people that are doing what you're doing, that's what gives me hope for our future. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with yeah. you. Yeah. Can you tell us about the first time you realized our food system was dependent on fossil fuels and how you moved to act? I go back to that aha moment in 1998 when I realized the role of fossil fuels in, in, in the modern world. And as soon as I saw that, the food system was the first place I went. And my wife and I were already into growing food. Actually, my wife has a degree in horticulture and she's a master gardener. She's much more skilled at that in a practical sense than I am. But yeah. I've always gardened and, and so on. The first thing we did once we realized the enormity of the problem and the role of fossil fuels, we discovered permaculture. Permaculture was started back in the 1970s by a couple of guys who realized all the stuff that we've just been talking about and designed a system to address all of these vulnerabilities and problems of the modern food system, relocalize it, take fossil fuels out, do all of these things. And so we took a 
permaculture design course from Bill Mollison, who was one of the founders. Nice. And then I got to know David Holmgren. He actually invited me to his place in Australia, Meliodora Farm. And I spent a few days there. I feel very honored to have done that. He and I went out on a lecture tour all across Australia talking about this stuff. And so I got a crash course <laughs> in one very, I think, useful, important way of addressing these problems. Permaculture is not just a method of gardening. It's a whole different way of thinking about food and the role of food in human society. So I'm living on the planet. Yeah. So for listeners, if you haven't taken a, a permaculture design course, I highly recommend it. It's a great way of getting involved in this. Amen to that. For those of you that don't know what permaculture is, permaculture, I like to call the art and science of working with nature. How do we work in the flow of nature rather than against it? And a permaculture design course is a 72-hour introduction to permaculture that gets you understanding how to work in the flow of nature. So I've had David Holmgren on the podcast. Great. Uh, yep. He was an epic episode. We actually, I actually got him for two episodes on the podcast. He's so, a brilliant man. He is definitely. So you have a book, Power, Limits and Prospects for Human Survival. Tell me about the book. I've written a bunch of books, but this one is the culmination of my book writing career. If you, Not that I will never write another book, but I'm never going to write one as comprehensive. I really wanted to bring together all of the threads of thought that I've been pursuing over the last, especially the last couple of decades. And it all, it really all boils down to power. What is power? In, in the most basic sense, a physicist would say power is the rate of energy transfer, but it's also the ability to do something because we use power to do everything that we're doing. We use energy to do everything we're doing. So we speak of the power of flight or the power of speech. But then we also have social power. If power is the ability to do something, social power is the ability to get somebody else to do something. Yep. And we humans have become champions of all of these aspects of power. We are nature's power overlords, <laughs> if you will, because we found so many ways of gathering and applying energy to do the things we want to do. And we've found energy sources like fossil fuels that have enabled us to just literally take over the whole planet. But you can have too much of a good thing. And that's the situation humanity is in right now. We are so empowered in comparison with the planet itself the planetary systems, other species, some humans in relation to others, economic inequality. The only solution is to power down, to actually self-limit our own power. And in the book, I talk about how power self-limitation exists throughout nature. This is not something we have to invent. And also through human history, indigenous societies found ways of monitoring and keeping keeping their, yeah, conserving resources by only harvesting them at certain times or in certain amounts and so on. That's the kind of power self-limitation that we human beings need to learn and apply if we're going to get through this century. It's not just a matter of building a bunch of solar panels and wind turbines, even though that's a good thing. It's also using less of nature 
reducing our population over time by empowering women to to take charge of their own reproduction and decisions in life. That's what the book is about, but there's so much detail in it. I can't go into it now, but the Power Podcast is a relatively easy way of getting the basic points of the book. And I highly recommend that. Yeah. And the name of the podcast is Power, (laughs) Limits and Prospects for Human Survival. It's a limited run. I just found out when we got on the phone today, I've been listening and your co-host, your name is Melody? Melody Travers. Yeah, she's wonderful. She's terrific oh to work with. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah, she's an amazing co-host on that. I've been very impressed when I'm listening to her. I got to ask this because one of the things that I struggle with since mid-70s, I wrote a paper on how we were overfishing the oceans when I was in the eighth grade in 1975. Uh, so yeah. I too have known that there is a, many challenges that we're not dealing with. And as far as I can see, when a population overshoots, there's only one logical outcome. And that's that there's a drawback of how many population can be there, a die-off. How do we get past that in the next century? Yeah. As I was saying, the only way we're going to be able to do it is to voluntarily self-limit our own power. And as I said earlier, nature does this. There are cycles of overshoot and die off in nature, as we talked about with the voles. That does happen. But at the same time, there are processes in nature of voluntary self-limitation, like in predators. There's what's now called prudent predator theory. And biologists who study predation have for a long time seen evidence of this, but they were unwilling to really call it what it was. But now there's a name for it and people are studying it. But this prudent predator theory looks at the evidence and says any particular population of predators really could predate even more efficiently than they're already doing and kill off all of the prey species that are available to them. They could do that, but they don't. And it's a deliberate adaptation that occurs in nature. So if it happens in nature, we can do the same thing. And we we already have ways of self-limiting ourselves. We have regulations of various kinds. We have treaties and labor unions. And all of these are ways of limiting power in one way or another. So we can do it, but we need to do it a lot more. And the reason we haven't been doing it enough is that fossil fuels gave us so much energy so fast that we developed this ideology, this mindset that said, there are no limits. We don't have to restrain ourselves. We can have it all. We can have economic growth forever. We can, if we use up this planet, we can go off and colonize other planets. So we developed this kind of Star Trek mentality. Yeah. And I like watching Star Trek. It's a fun show. But the ideology that it promotes that we can colonize the rest of the universe, take over habitat in places other than planet Earth, it's a fantasy. It's yeah. a fantasy TV show. And we're living that fantasy right now. And that fantasy is colliding with reality. <laughs> there you have it. And with that, we're going to shift. I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. 
Yeah. Okay. Probably the biggest failure of my career is back in the early 2000s, I wrote some books about peak oil. The idea oil is depleting, right? So that there were a number of petroleum geologists that I became tight with, and I learned a great deal from them. And they were forecasting that world oil production would peak and start to decline around 2005, 2010, something like that. And it didn't happen. Now, I that forced me to learn a little bit more about the oil industry, about petroleum geology than I had learned up to that point. And I realized that there's this stuff called unconventional resources, unconventional oil, natural gas, and so on. With oil, we've been producing mostly conventional oil up until the last 10, 15 years and in fact, conventional oil production has leveled off and started to decline, but we started producing in, here in the U.S. what's called tight oil. It's produced by hydrofracturing or fracking and horizontal oh, drilling. Nice. And U.S. oil production has increased faster and by a larger amount in the last 10 years than has ever happened before in any country around the world. So we've had this miracle of rapid increase in, oil, in unconventional oil production that has masked the underlying peak and decline in conventional oil. And so many people now look back on the whole peak oil discussion of the early 2000s and say they were just wrong. And they've forgotten about the fact that oil depletes, that other fossil fuels deplete, and they just don't want to talk about it. And that was a communication failure. And yeah. Interestingly, I Paul Ehrlich with the population bomb. Yes, um, I know Paul. Yeah, do you? I yeah. don't. I just know of him because of his work. I thought I saw him recently speaking about the same failure in his work. Because that's uh, right. Yeah, yeah. Because he called it what it was in the seventies, but things change along the way. Not that what he spoke of and what you spoke isn't eminent. It's coming. It has to come because we're going to run out. It's just the timeline that he picked and apparently the timeline that you picked yeah. um, shifted. Yes. And then it gives the naysayers the opportunity to say, see, it's not happening. <laughs> yeah. And meanwhile, tight oil production in the U.S. is getting tougher. There are a few plays where tight oil production is done, like the Bakken in North Dakota, the Permian in Texas and Arizona. And New Mexico. In most of those plays, tight oil production now has peaked and is starting to decline. That's true in North Dakota and others. The one place where there's still some growth opportunity is the Permian in Texas. So yeah. all hopes are on the Permian for U.S. to continue increasing its oil production. But how long is that going to happen? Another two, three, five years? And then so we should be planning now, as, as we were saying back in the early 2000s, we should be planning for a life without petroleum. And that means removing oil from all of our systems, not just electric cars, but our food system, as we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Wow. And what do you consider your biggest success? My biggest failure was my biggest success. I was in the right place at the right time. And I wrote some key books about oil depletion and peak oil that were pretty big sellers. And I got invited to speak all over the world. I, I recently, I got out some of my old calendars and I was getting on a plane twice a month to fly to Europe, South Africa, Central America, 
the Far East to give talks on these subjects. And I talked about overshoot and I talked about resource depletion and, and these things. And I, I think I was able to e educate a fair number of people. And then having Post Carbon Institute as an organization to help spread some of this information. We have a website called resilience.org that I think is a fabulous website with daily updated stories and articles, information about permaculture, as well as the global energy situation, all these things. I feel very fortunate to be able to do what I do. It's work, but it's very satisfying work. And yeah. I get to work with really smart very sociable people that I respect. Awesome. I'm a happy camper. <laughs> yeah. What drives you? What drives me is a concern for two things, nature and the human future. My wife and I do not have children out of choice yep, because neither, we, neither my wife and I, yeah, we realize the world just doesn't desperately need more people now. There are other folks who are good parents, and I respect them for that. But I have other things to do. But that doesn't mean I don't care about the next generations. I care desperately about them. I taught college for 10 years and got to interact with young people in that way. And that was a very happy time in my life. I did, too. I taught at Arizona State University for about eight years. But when I think about what the future could hold for the next generation, if we don't change what we're doing, it makes me very sad and very frightened. Same thing with the natural world. When I see the disappearance of butterflies and birds and mammals and amphibians and reptiles, on average, species have declined their population by about 70% wow. in the last 50 years. This is true of insects as well, flying insects. You drive down the road in 1970, and there's all kinds of bugs on your windshield and on the front of your car. And it's so many bug spots, it's hard to see. Today, you drive That's 70 wrong. miles an hour down the highway and nothing. Yeah. <laughs> There's a reason for that. We're poisoning all the bugs. So yeah. wow. if we're going to have yeah. a human future, if we're going to have a future of a healthy, natural world, we've got to change. And I feel a responsibility to help with that in any way I can. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the reason I ask this question is for that answer right there. And that's my answer too. I'm 62 years old and I'm doing this for the younger generations that are coming. I too didn't have kids on purpose. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. I'm very excited about this question. If you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? There's so many books I could oh, recommend. I I've got, I'm sitting in my office, which is, has several hundred books in it and all. all right, give me okay. Two. One. No, I'll give you one. I'll give you one. Cause I, I was prepared for this question. It's called an Inconvenient Apocalypse by Wes Jackson and Robert Jensen. And they're two good friends of mine. But Wes Jackson is somebody I've respected for a long time. He started something called the Land Institute, Institute. back in the 1970s. Yep. And he yep. spent his whole career trying to develop perennial grain crops because annual grain crops, which is what the world depends on right now for 80% of its nutrition, Annual grain crops are destroying the soil and are pretty unsustainable. So if we could develop perennial grain crops, that could be a big... So he's devoted his whole career to this. He's a geneticist. 
And not only is he a brilliant man, he's a delight to be with. He has this great sense of humor. But he and Robert Jensen, who's a a media guy and, and a terrific writer, got together and wrote this book. And it's just a wonderful, philosophical, but deeply moral look at our human situation in the 21st century, where we're going yeah, and where we could go. One of my favorite quotes of all time comes from Wes. If you're not planning out a hundred years, you're not thinking big enough. (laughs) And I paraphrase that. I don't know if that's Mm -hmm. exactly it, but that gets the that's west of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I and I live my life out of that. What one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? If you don't spend time in nature habitually, do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because you know we are becoming nature deprived as yeah. just as people and if that means growing a garden and getting your hands dirty that's great if you live in an apartment and that's just not possible for you then find a way to get outside the city on a regular basis and spend time in nature even if it's just a park get to know the birds that live in your area the native plants What's the water cycle? Where does your water come from? Mm, That's Um, a big one. Yeah. Yeah. So get in touch with nature, literally. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Richard. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. And how can our listeners find you in your book? The easiest way is to go to my website, which is richardheinberg.com. And also, my writings always appear on the website I already mentioned, resilience.org. By all means, check that out. Cool. Thank you. And you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash power limits. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams.